We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. How would you like a free case of craft beer? Well, as a listener to our show, we'd like to thank you for listening. And with the help of our friends at Beer52.com, we can do just that. Just go to Beer52.com forward slash vision. That's Beer, the number 52.com forward slash vision to claim a free case. Beer 52 is the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. They search out incredible and exclusive small batch craft beers from the world's greatest breweries and bring them back for their members. There is a whole world of craft beer out there. You don't have to drink the same thing over and over again. You don't have to order beer not knowing what you like. Just get on board with discovering great craft beer with Beer52.com. Every month focuses on a new country or theme, and if you sign up now, you'll get the chance to try a case of the best of British craft beers as part of their Summer Bangers selection, all for free. Featuring the country's best craft brewers, such as Northern Monk, Ilkley, Red Willow, and Thornbridge, all very delicious, you'll be able to read all about the beers and learn more about how they are made in a 100-page ferment magazine included in the box. As a listener to our show, you can try your first case for free. Just pay £2.95 postage. That's it. Eight incredible craft beers delivered to you, Ferment Magazine, and a snack with free next-day shipping. It's a no-brainer. There's no minimum commitment. You can just take the free case, try the beers, see what you think. If it's not for you, you can pause, cancel any time. Beer 52 has a five-star rating on Trustpilot, so it's easy to see that their members love the service. Do it now. Try some craft beer. Just visit beer52.com. That's www.beer52.com forward slash vision. And claim your free case today. Try it. Beer52.com. It is the way to learn more about great beers around the world. Offer valid in the UK only. What's a
Arsenal performance against Chelsea reminiscent of that time I had the grocery store sushi. Had the best intentions, but left me feeling a little leaky at the back. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That was disgusting, and I apologize. We've got a lot to get to. Uh, I am going to just tell you up front that we are probably not going to discuss the Ivan Gazidis thing. Uh, There's additional news that he may be off. We have discussed it on this pod, and until it comes to pass and there are real concrete discussions of who is going to replace Gazidis, I don't think we need to go into it in any more depth, and so we're just going to leave it at that. Yeah, well, that is your chief contribution. (laughs) Uh, Paul's on the podcast. I'll get to him in a moment. A little bit of housekeeping. Uh, You may have noticed we launched a website this past week, arsenalvisionpodcast.com. Uh, We have ways to kind of get involved, provide uh, questions for the pod, feedback, any of that sort of thing. Uh, Only the mean, nasty stuff, obviously. Um, We're going to have things like player ratings there, which we'll incorporate into uh, the podcast as the season goes on. We're going to have some guest contributors, both uh, voices and written work and some video stuff. There might be some live commentary. We're going to play with a lot of different stuff on that website. And uh, if you want to give it a a look and let us know what you think, we'd be happy to uh, hear all about it. So... We are going to dive in, though, because we're going to talk about the Chelsea match. Arsenal obviously emerged triumphantly in what can only be described as the performance of the century. Uh, Paul is here to talk about it. He's on Twitter at Paws My Pants. Hello, Paws. Woohoo! And Tim is back. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Clive has man flu. That's what he said. Man flu. I wonder if he's feeling a little leaky at the back, actually. You know what? Nothing would make him a truer Arsenal supporter than physically representing what Arsenal... Uh, look like on the pitch. But there's a lot to like about this performance. There's a lot to be, I think, skeptical of and concerned about in this performance, which is perfect for the kind of hashtag content we want to create. And let's kick it off with something that happened before the game even started. Tim, Mm. Ramsey injury. Actual injury or beginning of an opportunity for rampant transfer speculation? (laughs) Um, Probably both, but only one of them um, actually intentional and of the real world. Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> if if from Arsenal's point of view it was about an impending move, I mean, why would they name him in the starting lineup? Um, but I was I was thinking about it um, earlier this afternoon um, about you know Ramsey getting was it like a tight thigh or a tight calf? And you know we've heard that before. And I was thinking actually, uh, Ramsey I believe is our longest serving player at the moment. Been with us for ten years. And um, what Emery's got us doing, by the sounds of it, is physically completely different in terms of training. You know, there's, there seems to be a lot more intensity, a lot more focus on sprinting, running, um, pressing, etc. And, you know, if, even if Ramsey didn't already have plasticine hamstrings, uh, the guy who's probably going to be affected by that physically the most is the guy that's been playing under Arsene Wenger for 10 years. So if, if you know, training is very different and it is physically a step up you know a lot of this squad haven't been at Arsenal for very long when you look at the squad turnover it's absolutely huge so for a lot of them this won't actually be very new or even the fact you know for us it's it's very new not having Arsene Wenger but for a lot of these guys they've only been at Arsenal for a year or two so for them it's chumps change really but for Ramsey um, I I was kind of thinking yeah if he's been under like Wenger's training techniques for the last 10 years which by the way have obviously done his hamstrings no good anyway then if he's you know he's had a full season pre-season with the club and he's running more and he's pressing more and he's obviously he's quite an energetic player anyway but if we're doing this high press he's obviously going to be one of the key parts of that and basically I mean it, it could be just a complete coincidence obviously but if he's being asked 
to do something very different with his physical preparation, I think he's the player that's going to be affected the most by that and not just because of his uh, injury history. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Now, having said that, I think uh, if you believe the injury, which I do, I mean, I, I agree, Tim, like it seems a little ridiculous that they would name him in the lineup, remove him last minute to try to conceal some kind of deal that's going on behind the scenes. I mean, I wouldn't put anything past us, but it, it seems a little far-fetched. But, Paul, is it maybe just a little bit of a reminder that for all of us, myself included, that are kind of desperate for him to re-sign and you know, really think he's a, a critical part of this squad, that we need to pump the brakes a little before we throw a lot of money at a guy who does have these muscular problems? I mean, is this, yeah. is this a moment we to should- sort of reflect on what we are getting ready to commit ourselves to? This is a moment to dust off the Jack Wilshire new contract compensation plan, maybe with larger numbers, but we should remember that uh, if, and again, for those who uh, are obsessed with picking a starting 11 and including Ramsey in it, you know, this year could see, as many other years do, uh, you know, the last year he had a really good run. I don't know what he had, the best part of, of 30 starts. But before last year, he was averaging you know, at best 20 starts in the Premier League, uh, if you look at his previous campaign. So um, we'll talk about uh, ESR, uh, who looked a bit like a kid this time around, but there's going to be opportunities for whoever uh, can backfill for Ramsey during the season if he stays with us. Um, I suspect he will. I think if he were going, given the short window, there'd be much more noise than there is right now. And for him not to get off the bench we'd be uh, much closer to discussing his potential imminent departure. So I, I don't think it's that. I think it's I think it's niggles, but that's a pretty big factor for us and tells you that if he if he's instrumental to our starting eleven, um whether Emery likes rotation or not, hopefully he does, um he's gonna have to you would have to assume about fifty percent of the games will be somebody that's not Ramsey in the starting 11 and maybe he'll do better than that but it could well be he's the major driving force in our rotations mm-hmm. yeah well it's it is difficult because Ramsey is also a very unique type of player I don't think yeah. you'd say his skill set is fungible you know there are certain players like for example even if you really really love Shaka you look at yeah. a Gendozi Gendozi here we go. And you say, you, you wouldn't say that Ganduzi is going to just be as good as Shaka, but you can see some um, analogous, uh, analogous qualities in what they do, for example. Ramsey has a very sort of unique skill set and, and type of uh, approach to the game and attacking capability and goal scoring quality that I don't know that we have an, an, an analog for him in the squad. So him missing time can be more disruptive because there's no one that sort of naturally and easily comes in and replaces the kind of contribution he provides. I don't know if I've articulated that well, but hopefully... I think that's right. I think ESR might come close in a couple of years, and Mkhitaryan does a lot of the same things from us, but from a different starting point. But that's that's my thoughts on Ramsey. Well, Tim, I mean, let me ask you this then. Does this set the alarm bells ringing a little bit only because neither Torreira nor Shaka have been integrated yet? Uh, Their preseason is really only underway. Ramsey now mm-hmm. picks up this niggle, which, you know, maybe it's a couple days, maybe it's the dreaded, you know, three weeks. Um, in which case, Chelsea or City and Chelsea first two games right off the bat, and you could be looking at what you would assume is your first choice midfield 
potentially not available for selection or certainly not really fully fit and ready for selection. Mm. Uh, does this have you worrying a little bit, especially watching Emil Smith-Rowe, Ganduzi, and El Nenny kind of get bypassed time and again by Chelsea early in the game? Yeah, yeah. You've got to worry about that really a little bit. It's it's obviously far from ideal. Um, I think the kind of message we have that it was precautionary, precautionary with Ramsey, but I think um, the starting lineup on Saturday evening will tell us a lot about how precautionary um, but yeah, I, I still think one of Xhaka or Torreira will start against Manchester City. I, I think he'll probably have a good look at their physical condition and make a bit of a decision on which one of them he can put in. I'm not sure he'll put both of them in for the reasons you cite, but I think one of them will probably play regardless. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, and not least because we kind of need this midfield to gel quite quickly and one of the big advantages we've been talking up all summer is that we haven't had many players at the World Cup. But actually, we, we've got two of our, what we presume to be our first choice central midfielders who have been at the World Cup. So that maybe causes us um, a little, you know, a few conniptions. And that's, that, listen, that's why Emil Smith-Rowe has got his chance. Um, I Really, he's probably not going to play many Premier League minutes unless there's a bit of an injury crisis in there. Um, but he came on the tour and he got some minutes because we've got some players unavailable. But obviously, we, we want that midfield to gel as quickly as possible. And obviously, the quality of the opponents that we're playing um, in the first two games, you know, you want you want your first choice 11. And particularly with this kind of high press that uh, Unai Emery is trying to get us doing, we, you know, we, those younger, slightly younger players and, you know, El Nen is only just come back. So he was... He was probably not at his full physical potential. They they didn't quite get it right in the first half against Chelsea, to say the least. So really, you want your first choice players in there, particularly, you know, with the, with the sort of talent that City have got in there. And unfortunately, because Spain went out quite early, David Silva will certainly play that first game. I think even if De Bruyne doesn't, and David Silva is is you know an elite midfield player, um, and I'd really want probably Torreira in there to try and deal with him. Um, but yeah, it's it's obviously a worry um, if we're looking at three potentially first-choice midfielders being out of two really, really challenging games. Yeah, and, and I mean, the good news though, Tim, is I think without that midfield against City, maybe we just rely on, on the strength and experience and quality of our defense to get us through those first two games. <laughs> um, I think that's really the solution. Boo, so, <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, Paul, as far as the midfield performance in this game, I mean, this was sort of one of those traditional clashes of style because we did seem to be trying to press a little bit, but what Sari wants, clearly wants to do, and, and I think that this is what he's known for, is he wants to play out elaborately from the back, never going long and playing past the press and then getting into those transitions that you get if you're able to bypass a press. And they were really effective in that. I guess my concern and my question is, do you think that the way they were able to bypass our press and our midfield and then be running at our back four, do you think you can write it off purely as a personnel issue in terms of having an inexperienced and defensively lightweight midfield? Or for you, is it more of a potential problem related to how we want to play and the personnel we have at the back? Um, well, I mean, uh, so I'll go with Tim's general approach to preseason, which is you can't take it too seriously. It's it's at least 50% about fitness. 
Uh, on the other hand, that leaves you 50% to worry about how meaningful it was. I mean, Chelsea, you know, the, the, the good thing about this was this was a proper football game, especially in the first half. Chelsea were very good. They were very on it. Okay, they were missing a few few key players, but they still had a quality lineup. Um, in fact, if they played Hazard, um, we wouldn't have have had uh, Hudson-Odoi running at us all game. So uh, hopefully Hazard comes back and they drop down a level. Um, yeah, I thought they were very good. Um, and I thought it exposed us a bit. But that's, you know, in theory, that's good. You got you to gotta debug the software. Uh, of course, it would have been better if we didn't have any bugs in our software. But you certainly saw a few times, especially in the first half. I mean, they ran most of the first half. It was a shame they got the first goal in some ways after five minutes, apart from the obvious reasons of it's always a shame when the other side scores, in that it changed it into a game in which we were maybe uh, chasing it and pushing and maybe uh, over-pressing, which is okay. We'll have to do a lot of that during the season. But it would have been nice in the first a real proper kind of test that it, we had a more balanced challenge, that it was more about keeping our shape. So here we are. The, to me, the first game that really felt like a game, especially in the first half. After five minutes, we're chasing the game, we're pushing forward, trying to make something happen. And there were a couple of times, as you said, they broke our our press or counter press, whatever, in, in their box. And suddenly, uh, a, a scene all too familiar to us is them running straight at our back line with maybe one of our 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 uh, central one of the uh, Genduzi sisters mm-hmm. running back to try and catch up to the center backs and maybe one of the full backs uh, way too too far forward and us scrambling so i mean it was good practice from that standpoint we got to scramble at the back uh check pulled out a few key saves yeah, should yeah. be mentioned uh, he was on fire defensively uh, we can talk about goalkeeper in a little bit. It looks like he got the 90 this time round. Gives gives uh, Emery the excuse to put in Leno for 90 uh, in the next game, which is Lazio, I believe, at the weekend. Yep. So, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that lines up. Uh, we played a very high line, which fed into them coming at us. And when we didn't put pressure on the ball, as we saw, saw a couple of times, uh, we saw our backline scurrying backwards so yeah the first half was a really good half in terms of putting us on the rack and seeing how we responded i think we we're better in the last 15 minutes of that half we looked we came back into it yeah ozo started to shine so i don't know if that answers your question it but answered I think a lot of questions of, really so stream of consciousness no, no, Paul. that's what we're, no, that's no. What we're here for no it did answer your question <laughs> yeah it, it, your <laughs> question was simple the answer was complex there were kind of three different phases <laughs> in the even in that first half the second half was another thing altogether but in, in the first half you saw us on the rack and then maybe responding to it in the last 15 minutes. It's answered my question much in the same way that a fire hose can get you clean if you, if you spray it at yourself. Um, I like your approach, too. I'm going to I'm gonna try that in other walks of life, we, the way you oh, started yeah. that, where you're like, yes, we were terribly exposed at the back, and they were constantly putting us on the rack, but that was a good thing. I, yes, we lost the patient, but in some ways, that was a good thing. because um, it brought the family close together. There you go. See, you, you must be in marketing, surely. Unlike um, our defense. Yeah, no, it did not bring the family closer. Uh, you know, couple, yeah, go ahead, Tim. What, what, you saying that is quite interesting, because I very nearly tweeted something during the game, and then I deleted it and decided I couldn't be bothered. But... Um, when we were really on the rack in that first half an hour, I was about to tweet, 
because I, I saw obviously everyone was having a massive meltdown. And I was saying, actually, this is a really useful exercise for us, not least because we're playing Chelsea in two and a half weeks and we're, we're getting a much better examination, a much better look under their bonnet than they're getting under ours, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like you could see how exactly, and you you know, you can see already how, how Sarri wants them to play and it's it's very similar to the way Napoli play. And I, I was sitting there kind of thinking, you know, this, this is actually a very valuable learning curve for us in the first uh, 30 minutes. And, um, you know, I, I suppose... Jorginho thing, is quite good, isn't he, Tim? Yeah, he, he's very good. He's very good. Um, Murata less so, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crucially, he he knows exactly how Sari wants to play and he's the key to it all. So, yeah, um, they've kind of... But um, I suppose one thing I, I would take from... Uh, maybe the the Atleti, the PSG and the Chelsea games together is we've had periods in those games where things haven't gone quite well or we've started well and tailed off and we've done something. I don't know what precisely, but and, and again, it might all just be a massive coincidence, but in each game, we've come out of the bad period. We've done something by luck or judgment or whatever to change it. Um, we've changed something. We've changed the shape a little bit. We've changed our approach and we've kind of dug ourselves out. Um, and again, I, I think that's that's potentially quite valuable. Do you do you think that there's any chance that maybe we played possum a little bit tactically in the sense that uh, Emery didn't want to tip his hand too much in terms of what we're going to do so that the tactics might have been a little more vanilla? Uh, I'm not saying like we made ourselves more vulnerable. I don't believe that for a second, but that we we may have approached this with less sort of tactical intensity than we might otherwise have given that we're playing them in a couple of weeks? I don't think so. I think the fact that we were without all of our midfield um, kind of did that anyway, um, quite frankly. Um, but no, no, I, 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 don't, I don't quite think um, it happened like that. I think, it, you know, it's just obviously it's going to take time to adjust to a new style um, and things like that. But I, I kind of thought I'd been having since you guys did the pod last week, which I wasn't on. Um, it, it was I, to, ev- to everybody's loss, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, and and one of the thing, one of the thoughts I kind of came away with was I've, I've got this kind of hunch that Emery is going to go a little bit horses for courses. So um, I, I think there was something about his lineup that was significant that Bamiyang was up front and Lacazette was on the bench. I, I think that for games like this, so sorry for for games against quote unquote the fodder at home. I think you'll see Ramsey at eight, Ozil at ten, Abamyang wide left, Lacazette up front, throw out the whole cavalry, and um, to quote Paul, fuck him, and try and win <laughs> four or five nil. But then when it comes to Chelsea or Man City, one of those guys is going to get dropped. Um, Ozil will probably have to play on the right and suck it up if he plays at all against like the likes of Chelsea and Manchester City, and then you know you'll have Xhaka and Torreira. Against the fodder, we probably only need one of Xhaka or Torreira in midfield. But then for the bigger games, I think you'll draft another one in and drop one of the attackers. And and I thought it was quite interesting, you know, that Ozil started on the right, Mkhitaryan on the left, Aubameyang up front. I think that may be the way, at least at the moment, that he'll yep. be thinking about going in the first two games. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I, before I uh, interrogate that a little more, because I, I have another question for you. Paul, you had a theory about whether or not we were sort of playing possum. Yeah, I think we looked like we were playing possum because I think as we started quite brightly, they scored a goal 
and it seemed then that uh, in doing a little emery whispering that his focus became playing out from the back and you you saw that in the uh, post game interview uh, the thing he went to was building up play and playing out from the back and there was a lot of emphasis in the first half of Socrates and Mustafi as centre back spreading like almost uh, touchline to touchline playing out from there and then Gunduzi dropping in between the two of them or if Mustafi wasn't um, f- all the way to the touchline, El Nenny or Ganduzi would drop into the fullback spot. The fullbacks were f- pushed forward to receive the ball, and it's almost like um, the for, first of all being a goal down kind of played into Chelsea kind of uh, dropping back a little bit. And on the other hand, Emery went to uh, screw it. This is about how we're going to build play from the back. And I think that's why I felt like Possum. It was actually more, all right, let's get back to learning how we're going to play our style. And it was all about building between the two centre-backs, them splitting wide, uh, moving the ball from side to side. The the full-back's been almost vertically ahead of them, but a really wide split between the centre-backs. And he also made a somewhat veiled, but not that veiled criticism of the goalkeeper and distribution. So to me, his whole thing, almost classically, almost like a pep thing, uh, what he went to as soon as we went to goal down, because, you know, we started great and it's all, you know, everybody's going crazy and the ball's kind of pinging around. And then we go down a goal and he says, all right, let's go to the game plan, which is building from the back. And I think that's why much of the first half felt a bit like possum, because we're not very good at it yet, yeah. and because Sari's all about pressing, so it got got for it turned into an interesting chess game, and kind of back to Tim's point where he kind of agreed with my point. So really, back to my point, um, we got. <laughs> I, we I, got I'm sorry, better. I wasn't aware you were making a point. <laughs> <laughs> we got better as the half went on. The last 15 minutes could have just said we, that. <laughs> yeah, could have been a lot more respectable. Um, well, if, if I had to place money on anything that I believe now from this preseason, and Tim, I know that you are no- notorious for your belief that preseason just shouldn't be watched and, and opined upon, really, because people draw conclusions from what is largely a uh, fitness exercise, and I think there's a lot of truth By to that. People, he means you and me. Yeah, well, <laughs> do, do we even qualify? Um, but what I, what I would say is I think it is fair to say that it's clear uh, Emery wants us to play out from the back. And one thing that mm-hmm. seems clear is he wants to split those center backs and have the deepest midfielder drop in and you know sort of be the the extra option to give the ball to and, and be the person that starts the buildup. Having said that, it also puts a lot of pressure on the goalkeeper and his distribution. And Czech yeah. was brilliant in this game at the whole goalkeeping thing, but I think we saw in the first half that he struggles with distributing short and, and playing out from the back. And so if, if, I, if I think I believe anything... I started off this summer thinking Czech would start the season as our goalkeeper. Leno would be sort of brought in slowly. But now I'm starting mm. to believe that that just doesn't work if this is the way he wants to play. I mean, are you prepared mm. to maybe jump to the conclusion that that we do need to start with Leno at goalkeeper and will do so because playing out from the back is important and, and that is an area where Czech maybe is, is not as strong? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I've, I've kind of thought for a while that Leno was was going to come in as as number one really and start straight away we paid quite a lot of money for him and you know he's he's been very involved in pre-season he'd started the two games before this and check you know barely get got, well he didn't he didn't get on did it in the PSG game I appreciate you got 90 minutes this time and 
I, I mean, I, one thing I'd say about Emery is he seems intent on giving everyone their chance. Um, he's, you know, he's having a good look at everybody. The guys that have got two years left on their contract, he's extended them all. Uh, well, not all of them, but extended some of them. You know, he's, he seems intent on giving everyone a fair crack of the whip. But yeah, I think if he wants to play out from the back like that, I, Petr Cech has never been able to do that. And he's not going to learn now, um, quite frankly. Right. Yeah, so he's not a spring chicken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, he, and he's not really learned it in his kind of few years at Arsenal, which is understandable given his age. So, yeah, I, I think Leno, I fully expect Leno to start. Um, the first, well, I, I fully accept, expect him to start the Premier League games and be first choice until such time that um, he makes a bit of a, a bit of a boo boo. As far as the the defensive effort and the performance from the back four, I mean, one thing that surprised me was how much Bellerin struggled with Hudson Odoi for pace. Um, I mean, I, I I think we all, and by we all, I mean all Arsenal fans have reason to be concerned about the back four. Um, mm. it, it is certainly the area of greatest weakness in the squad. We can have varying degrees of concern about it, but I think concern is warranted. Uh, were you at all worried by Bellerin's performance, or for him, given his seniority, do you just class this as it, it's a fitness exercise for him and, and he's at half pace? A little bit of both. I, it wasn't a great performance from him. I I still think uh, I, I still think he's quite exposed. Um, so, I mean, f- first of all, from an attacking standpoint, he's still kind of got the same issue he had last year, which is that Ozil's uh, so playing on the right and Ozil playing on the right means he's not really on the right. So he's he's lacking that option. Um, I also think, you know, I, I, one of the things that we'll see a little bit this season is that when you press high and teams go over the top of it or they manage to get past the press, then, yeah, you're exposed. I mean, look at Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool's centre-halves, I think, are made, or prior to Van Dijk, have been made to look worse than they are because they press so frantically, which mm-hmm. most of the time works. But when it doesn't, it looks really bad on your defence. And that's why Klopp, uh, Klopp, I think, is bit like Wenger in that he knows he can't really organize a defense or he knows that his defense is going to be exposed so he knows that he requires elite defensive individuals so you know Wenger had Tony Adams then he had Sol Campbell I I think Koscielny maybe just about creeps onto that spectrum albeit on the lower end of it so he's had these kind of very magnetic very good defenders who you know who can take the pain of playing for Arsenal uh, and Klopp's having to do something similar with Liverpool. And I, I think we'll still see that, particularly while we're settling the pressing in. And I think that that was the issue, really, was that every time Chelsea got the ball within 40 yards of our goal, it really was just the defenders. And they were they, they defend quite they defend quite narrow as well. So when Chelsea were going down that left-hand side and going down with a lot of pace... And Bellerin doesn't really have any support there. He doesn't really have any support from his centre-half inside him. He obviously doesn't have any support coming back from Ozil. No, nevertheless, he you know he still played quite badly. And that penalty, he dived in when he probably shouldn't have. Um, but yeah, I, I, I still think that there's some mitigation there for him. However, I don't think those problems are necessarily going away. Mm. And we're going to have to find a way to deal with them. I mean, do, do you think that Licksteiner has any chance to be 
the right back? Um, uh, well, maybe. I mean, we have I, no idea. I don't, <laughs> we haven't seen yeah, him at all. I, I don't see it, um, but I think where it will be very useful is if we can rotate a little bit, um, particularly in the fullback roles. You know, I don't, I don't think maybe we'll come onto this. I don't think Kalasinac has been hugely convincing either. Um, and it's probably not a huge coincidence that both the fullbacks are kind of suffering, particularly in this kind of pressing style that we're, that we're trying to do. Um, incidentally, I, I point people to Lewis Ambrose's uh, tactics column on Ask Blog, which has gone out today, which is really good. It shows some, it's got some videos in it that really illustrate how the front four are really pressing and, and allowing the guys behind them to get organised again when we lose the ball uh, with counter pressing. But Chelsea got picked their way through that quite a lot in the first half, and I think all four of the back four suffered. Um, so it, it was kind of the same problem we had under Wenger but in a different way yeah and it wasn't good, this good time <laughs> yeah it wasn't this time the defense was still exposed but for different reasons it wasn't just because everyone was walking back or setting up a deck chair on the halfway <laughs> line and watching their teammates get absolutely mullered it was because they've been pressing high uh, and as time goes on we'll get better at that we'll get better at judging when to do it we'll get better at executing it but I think all four of the back four uh, got exposed quite badly but like I said earlier we fixed it somehow we kind of we moved Ozil a bit more central that was a big um, move moved, big change yeah. yeah yeah we almost moved to a bit more of like a 4-1-4-1 shape um, which which kind of countered Chelsea a little bit more it gave us a little bit more support in the middle of the pitch what, what um, point in the game do you think we did that just I, so I think that change happened at half time. Yeah, but yeah. you're you're okay. you're quite right to say that the last fifteen minutes of the first half, even before that, you know, we 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 found our way. Yeah, um, and, and Ozil was very often the the the, the instigator, Ganduzi yeah. to Ozil or something like that, and then. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, yeah. look, this is also why I think this is where I think you have to pump the brakes on reading too much in the preseason games too, because. Yeah. Um, you know, how plugged in is Ozil? How much, did, you know, maybe for the first half hour, he was just out there to get a good jog and then decided, I want to be on the ball more. You know, you just, you really don't know in these games how much those really experienced star players are engaged in, in what the instructions are and what they're being told to do and, and how much they're, they're sort of freestyling. So, but it definitely looked like he was moved centrally for the second half. That much seemed pretty clear. Um, Paul, I think it's also interesting he got 90 minutes. Um, for, you know, yeah. for Ozil. So, uh, a he it means he's he's healthy. B he it means he's keen, and C for obvious reasons he's instrumental in what we do. And he was instrumental in you know he he really was the guy pushing at the end, apart from the young lads who just come on to get the goal. So, oh yeah, the beautiful reverse like ball, to, right? That, yeah, that sets yeah, up the, yeah. the equalizer. Um, well, well, Paul, just real quick, and and by the way, I I kind of solicited some questions from listeners. Uh, to send send them in on our, our little message service on the website, the new website. And uh, we got a ton of them, which is awesome, and I want to thank everyone. So many of them were broadly, like, questions about the season going forward. So what I'm going to do is kind of bookmark a bunch of them because we have a season preview pod coming up next week where they'll be a little more appropriate, and I want to stay a little more tightly focused on this game. But one that sort of fits, Lori Laker got in touch and, and asked, 
Uh, is it time to call Kolasinac a, a busted flush, or do we persist with the oddly weak tank? Going forward, he's always <laughs> seemed efficient. Defensively, he's woefully suspect beyond the initial intimidation factor that his physicality brings. So, Paul, I mean, I, I do have to admit I'm a little worried by Kolasinac, and, and it's interesting. He is good going forward, but where I think he actually struggles is just basic buildup uh, and passing. He he always seems to want to cut inside. Um, he's a little loose with his touch and a little loose with his basic passing. I mean, do you have any kind of read on on him and do you think it's just a case of biding time until nacho comes back and takes his place back uh yeah i mean it doesn't seem like much of a competition between him and monreal at the moment um what was interesting he had a lot of injury issues last year and you kind of hope they went away but twice in this game he went down with the niggle and both times before he even hit the ground he had his arm up waving to the touchline like he's got stuff going on all the time and he's frightened, he's scared. Um, so I just wonder what kind of shape he's really in at the moment. I, I wonder if there's just, he's one of those guys who has niggles shooting up and down his body all the time. Um, do you, do you, did and, we and hear anything about his, his knee confidence. injury? Did, did we get any post-match? He, he left on crutches, apparently. So It's Jesus. worrying because it was one of those, he, he got the hit on the side and the knee kind of caved inward a little bit like uh, laterally which yeah. you know i just know and i i'm not a doctor but i'm perfectly willing to provide a prognosis a medical prognosis yeah, yeah. uh yeah, yeah. you know that's, that's where you start do. to worry about like the the medial collateral ligament that kind of thing so uh, and, and he went down in the first half in in their penalty area and before he hit the ground his arm went straight up in the air and that it just seems to great tell reaction me- time <laughs> It was, yeah. Um, if he could use that for claiming a penalty, we might have been in business. But um, it just kind of tells me, I think we saw some of this last year as well, he's r- way quick to wave an arm and say, I'm in trouble. And I, he, he's no, you know, he's no, he's no wuss. So I suspect he's continually dealing with stuff. And it's because we saw a really good player for about three months last season. Well, this was a very strange body type for a fullback, right? I mean, he's carrying a yeah. lot of weight, a lot of muscle. He's yeah. very big. You, you wonder about, you know, whether that frame can support all that running and cutting. Um, yeah. Well, so basically, Ains- Ainsley Maitland-Niles left back opportunity for the season calling. Uh, of course, there's Monreal, who's a class player. But um, I, I still go with the Maitland-Niles could get opportunities on both wings the way things are going. Um, and uh, well, he, he may have to get him there because I'm not sure that the path yeah. to midfield looks as straightforward anymore. Let's do yeah. this. Let's take a quick break and come back in part two with some striker talk uh, and and more talk about the midfield. We'll give Tim a chance to to weigh in on Genduzi, who he hasn't had a chance to talk about yet, at least on this podcast. So uh, we'll take a brief break and come back with more right after this. I see no changes. All I see is racist faces. Misplaced hate makes disgrace to racist. We under. I wonder what it takes to make this one better place. Let's see race the waste it. Take the evil out the people, they'll be acting right. Cause both black and white and smoke a crack tonight. And the only time we chill is when we kill each other. It's a skill to be real time to heal each other. And although it seems heaven sick, we ain't right. Okay, we're back. And uh, I do want to give you a chance, Tim, to talk about Genduzi. I I'm sort of all in, which I realize exposes me to ridicule. Having said that, <laughs> I feel that I am nothing uh if not Elliot willing to expose myself to ridicule all in i'm all in um i'm all <laughs> right. in on being ridiculed thursday the 2nd of august perfect you Go got ahead. that cool yep great um so tim are you all in and if not why not 
Uh, not yet, no. I've, I've, I've been impressed with what I've seen um, with him. I, I kind of agree with what Clive said uh, on the last podcast, which, you know, he, he seems like a kind of slightly sped up El Nenny, which is, which is a good thing. I still think there are some fairly clear flaws in his game, which, given his age and experience, is absolutely fine. Do you want to identify I think uh, I think he dwells on the ball a little bit. Um, but, you know, he's been playing in the French second division, so we can expect that. I think I think he can look a little bit rash sometimes. Again, given his age and experience, I think that's absolutely fine. Um, but, yeah, I, so I, my kind of theory with uh, Guendouzi, who I, who, I, who I agree has been good, um, he's been one of the highlights of pre-season. And I, definitely your, your highlight players of pre-season should always be either young or inexperienced players. There is nothing to read, I don't think, into any other individual performances. I think you can start looking at how the team's playing and how it's structured. But on individuals, I don't think you can say a lot other than the young players. I think they're the only ones who you look at and say, yeah, OK, he looks like he belongs in this company. And then some of them you look at and think, mm, yeah, maybe not so much you. Um, and, and, you know, he looks like he belongs in this company. He is uh, quite sure of himself, which is very good. But I do think that we're projecting um, a little bit. I think there are some elements of his game that fast forward three months uh, will piss everyone off. The off the ball uh, stuff predominantly. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which will be harsh when it, if and when it happens. But um, I, I do think that will happen. And I think the reason it's happening is fairly obvious. You know, go back and look at the August uh, player of the month on Arsenal.com every year. It's always a new signing because we always want to see the best in the new signing. We always, you know, after like 30 minutes, we're like, oh, this this guy has transformed us. Even when Matthew Flamini came back and he kind of made his second debut against Spurs at home. I remember everyone saying, yes, this is this is brilliant. He, he looks, you know, he looks like the missing piece. And, you know, we do that a lot. Was he? And How'd that turn out? No, he, no, he wasn't? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, narrator voice, he was not. <laughs> Extreme narrator voice. Um, and, and, you know, we've got a couple of new signings on the tour, but because the Bundesliga is very widely watched and lots of people know lots about it, there's some doubts about Leno, there's some doubts about Socrates. Lichtsteiner hasn't played and he's 34 anyway. Torreira hasn't played. Torreira is the one that once he starts playing, within 30 minutes, everyone will say he's the second coming. He's totally changed everything. Etc. Etc. I'm prepared um, to say I'm, that now, <laughs> so. and I'm not. I'm not saying he won't eventually do that. I, I think he definitely, from what I've seen, looks like exactly the sort of player I think we've needed for a little while. So I think that's all understandable. But people will go overboard, and my prediction now is that Torreira will win August Player of the Month on Arsenal.com because everyone will immediately see him as as the answer to everything. And we haven't really had that player on tour other than Guendouzi. He he is the one who is new and we don't really know much about. And he's quite young. So so there's a lot for us to project there. There's a big blank canvas for us to project our, our hopes and dreams. Um, Do you think again, he's looked I, better in the way he's impressed than other young players who have impressed in preseasons previously. So I, I know that's a convoluted question, but what I mean is like, <laughs> no, no, um, like, like Jeffrey and Adelaide was a preseason star. Um, you know, Oxley Chamberlain, when he was younger, starred in some preseasons and, and flattered yeah, to deceive. Yeah. And I, I think what I'm saying is to me in Genduzi, what I see is a guy who has 
really pulled the focus of the game into him and shown things throughout a match that I think can translate into usable skill now, whereas a lot of yeah. times what you see with a young player is like, a goal from 30 yards or a, f- a burst of pace, and you remember it and you think, oh, he looks like the real thing. Has has the stuff Ganduzi's done to you translated more directly to a first-team role, or do you think this is similar to a, a lot of the, the youth performances we've seen in preseasons? There's there's certainly some good stuff to work with there, and I, I, think, I think his kind of personality... Even to the level it, it looks as though he's ingratiated himself with the team, and you know we saw him kind of celebrating fairly in a in a fairly jovial style when we won the shootout, and he seems to have made friends already. And you know, like I said, he he looks like he belongs. Um, he looks like fairly confident, which I think is very interesting. He does have very interesting qualities. Yes, I also do think that he's quite a noticeable player. You know. Um, not quite in the same mould as like a, a Flamini or a Gokalan, but but people were impressed by those players initially because they're very visible. It's very obvious what they do because they move a lot and they move very quickly. And players like that will always, you know, will always, particularly when they're in their honeymoon period, will always catch our eye um, a little bit more. Whereas someone like Maitland-Niles, for example, I think he's slightly more subtle um, and he's not a kind of harem, scarem, uh, run around in fact he's kind of the opposite he's he's very composed which which personally i think is a really good thing i, th- I think you know maybe sometimes he's too composed but I, I think that's a good baseline to work with and he he to me looks like he belongs in a different way because he looks like he already looks like he feels comfortable there Gwendozi, it's he's obviously got a slightly more high octane style but yeah you're right he he kind of wants to get on the ball and he wants to dictate and i think that's that's very, very positive. Um, but I, I've seen plenty of young players like that as well. I, that impressed me about Nicholas Bentner when he was younger. I thought, here we go, this guy, he's, he's confident, to say the least. He wants the ball. Uh, when he misses a chance, he's not bothered. He's in there for the next one. And I thought that that would serve him brilliantly. Um, you know, a lot of us thought that about Chesney, didn't we? That he had this kind of, looks like he belongs, you know, looks like he's a fairly dominant character. And uh, ultimately, by hook or by crook, whether you agree with it or not, it didn't work out because we ended up selling him. So, you know, there, there are there are plenty of examples of Gwendozis too, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I mean, Paul, do you want to defend my, my love and the light of my life? I do. Can I you do. please? From, yeah, from, uh, from the slander that's taking yes. place on this podcast? <laughs> uh, I, got, I got to point out that Tim's opinion should be totally ignored after all he's the guy who got bentner completely wrong <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how did you not see that one coming to yeah i've i've backed a few bad horses in yes. he, youth. What, <laughs> one, one minute horse. one minute you're missing a chance at the new camp that can send you past barcelona the next minute you're fucking a taxi life comes at you fast but enough about Bentner. <laughs> i think tim's overcompensating for all the ones he got wrong in the past but Ganduzi, i think he might be the real deal no look Look, he's got he's obviously got some stuff that he's got a profile we don't have. Terrero may bring a, a piece of it, um, but he just does something nobody has. It, it, when you look at what he does in that midfield, his quick feet to kind of find an angle. There may not be a pass straight up the midfield, but after he's kind of twisted, turned a little bit, moves the ball quickly to one side, he'll find a a ball straight up the middle to whoever, Mkhitaryan or uh, ESR yesterday. Um, The head scanning, 
he he's always on that of course his decision makings you know he's he's learning to adjust that dial uh, he's only 19, but he's going to play quite a bit for us this season. He won't be a starter, most likely, but I think we'll see a lot of him. And uh, I, I, Which regular starter do you think he is most likely to be able to step in and, and spell if he were to get a first-team role? I mean, let's assume that yeah, the yeah. midfield starting is... Yeah, okay, well, you answered it before I went there. So, yeah, because I agree. I, obviously, he can't he can't defend yet. He doesn't have the feel for you know, marking runners off the ball and, and he doesn't seem like he's got much of a tackle on him. And, you know, maybe he's, you know, as, as Tim pointed out, is a little impetuous off the ball, but if Torreira is yeah. back, there, sort of shielding yep. and Ramsey yeah. is bombing forward to, to get in the box. The guy who's got to kind of link it all together is Shaka and, and Ganduzi to me seems like, like he has the skill set to, to play that role. And that's how you see it as well. Yeah, and he's he's operating at about twice the speed in terms of the head scanning, the foot movement, the the adjusting of position to find a line. Uh, and at this stage, I have to agree with Tim. I'm I'm definitely getting the preseasons, getting way ahead of myself. But you can see you can see you can see all that in his game. You can also see he needs to adjust the risk dial and not do you know probably ninety percent of what he does is fine. Ten percent. Uh, he, you know, he's he's exposing him, himself in the back back four. He got away with it a couple of times and didn't get away with a couple of times in this game. We saw it as, as well in the first game. He was a bit better in, uh, against PSG. Um, so he's not ready for prime time starter. But you could see in a year's time him and Terreira being a, a hell of a back two. Plus the communication between the two of them, given that one of them is called Terreira and Ganduzi, so they're both clearly the same, similar kind of foreign. Yeah, so that'd be good. Yeah, yeah. great, great way to finish up an otherwise strong point, Tim. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean to finish on this. Then I mean obviously. Uh, you're right that a little bit of, of circumspection is required here. Uh, not not my strong suit, but certainly required. Um, but do you think it is at least fair to say that his his arrival and his performance and the fact that he's gotten all these minutes is most problematic for uh, Maitland-Niles, what really was poised to look like potentially his breakthrough season and a chance to at least fight for first-team minutes in, in central midfield? Do you think he's the one who whose path gets blocked by this at all? Yeah, quite possibly. Although I've I've got this hunch, and it's totally uninformed. I've, I've got this kind of hunch that in the midfield, that that um, there are going to be understudies to specific players. So I think, for example, um, if Torreira is injured, then it will be Maitland Niles. If Shaq is injured, it will be Guendouzi. If Rams is injured, well, we've already made the point that there isn't really a direct. Um, a, a direct Ramsey replacement, but I, I don't know why. I've just got this feeling that that's that's how it's going to come out. I think it's a great um, point, actually. Yeah. Well, then, then who, who's, who's El Nenny replaced? Because the funny thing is, you know, you yeah. may not want to get carried away with Ganduzi, and I totally understand. But seeing mm. him side by side with El Nenny, I certainly felt he he took the game by the scruff of the neck a lot more than El Nenny, who was just kind of out there. I mean, yeah, to, yeah. Be fair, to be fair to him anyway, let me stop because I know you want to correct me. He had a couple good pressing moments where he, he was able to get the ball uh, in the opposition final third, win it back, and, and create transition opportunities. So I want, I want to re- retract my previous statements. Not they didn't do um, anything, but but you want to expand on that? And, and also, Alnen has only just really come back from the World Cup. Um, he's not had yeah, that many point. minutes, so there's that as well. But yeah, so I agree. I, I think it's what Clive was saying last week, wasn't it, that... that 
Guendouzi is actually the biggest threat to El Nene at the moment, and that should be his immediate um, ambition, I think, should be to make El Nene redundant, maybe. Because Maitland, I know he's just signed a new contract, but that was under the old regime. Emery's got Maitland-Niles on a new deal, so obviously wants to have a good look at him. He's got Xhaka on a new deal. He signed Torreira. Um, so, so maybe, having signed a contract in, what, April? Maybe rather than Maitland Niles, it's El Nenny who's um, who's got the kind of who's got the fire under his ass here, um, and and they do seem to be like fairly similar profiles of player. Um, so I I think that that may be the more immediately interesting one than Maitland Niles, and also I I think Paul's got a point. Maitland Niles could get quite a few minutes at left back um, this season, particularly if we're minded to stick with the back four, which it looks like we will be. You know, who would want to be a manager or, in the case of Arsenal Football Club, a coach? Um, I think you make a really great point, but think about it. It's that first Europa League game. You're rotating the squad. You're playing Apple Pickers FC. Um, and you should just breeze through this group stage. But you got to pick a side. And suddenly you're like, do I just pick the experienced Egyptian international Mohamed El Nenny and trust that that's not going to embarrass me? Or do I pick this kid who was playing, you know, second division French football four months ago and start him instead? And you can see why that's a really tough call, right? I mean, if you're mm-hmm. Emery and you just want to breeze through a Europa League group and you don't want to have to worry too much, it is tempting to just pick the guy with the experience that you, you think mm-hmm. his performance is a little more predictable. Um, you know, and, and that's why I think it is tough for these kids to get in to the side because is he going to go out there and pick a midfield of Maitland, Niles, Ganduzi, and Emil Smith-Rowe for a Europa League group game? I mean, they may be good enough to get through that, but that's putting a lot of confidence in youth and, and in experience. So I, I think that is a very difficult choice for a coach, especially a new coach, to make. Um, I think we covered the midfield pretty well. I, I do want to get into the the Obama-Yang-Lacazette thing, uh, but before we do that, just really quickly, Paul, let's touch on Mkhitaryan. You know, I, this is where I think you have to balance the question of is the preseason just a fitness exercise or is it a chance to see how players fit into systems? And there have Amen. been a couple of times when Aubameyang and Lacazette have played together and Mkhitaryan has played with the other group and this was a chance for Mkhitaryan to play with Aubameyang and Lacazette was with the other group. And I'm not sure Mkhitaryan has really caught the eye this preseason. Now, you know, again, he's a senior player with a lot of experience who's shown the quality he has over time, but... Is is he the player who maybe might wind up being on the outside looking in for a starting role on the basis of what you've seen so far? Uh, yeah, except uh, I definitely f- feel he's the player who most fits uh, Tim's description of what preseason is about, which is senior players don't really switch on till real games. And I'm kind of hoping that's what's going on with Mkhitaryan it. You it's know, tough, I, though, right? Because on the flip side, he's sort of in a battle for his place, right? I mean, of sort course, of. Yeah. Like him or Lacazette. I, I think if we assume Aubameyang's starting, and some of this is formation-related, isn't he kind? doesn't he kind of have to show something? Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. Uh, this year, more than ever, there's no almost no player who can just assume he's just building fitness for the start of the season. But still, in some ways, you feel what you feel. Um and he just seems to be the slowest warming up to takeoff velocity. So, I mean, we know he's a much better player than he showed so far. So what else can I think on that? Uh, I'm not conv- I'm convinced we'll see plenty of 
Lacazette and Aubameyang starting together. But I still think that the starting 11, the true starting 11 uh, in bigger games is going to include Mkhitaryan or should, uh, unless he continues to underperform for the rest of the season. So that's what I think is going on because um, he hasn't been like super great so far. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't have too much to add on him apart from, uh, you know, he, he hasn't been great, but he certainly fits the profile of the senior players who just can't pretend to go 100% in preseason. It's and funny how he, things can change quickly, right? Because yeah. against Atletico uh, in the Europa League semifinal, I really felt that his absence was the difference between getting through that tie and not getting yeah. through it. I, I may be wrong, but I certainly felt that way. Uh, and my feelings are really what dictates what comes out of my mouth. But Yeah, and, and it does make me think we're going to play this year mostly without width up front. I mean, that's that's just the way it well, is. Well, you got to play to what you have, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and apparently we're okay with that for now. And it wouldn't be the first time, apparently, from reading stuff that Emery has done that. Sometimes he gets the width from his fullbacks. And to well, give give Bellerin some credit, because we've given him a hard time, and fairly so, um, he did actually come into his own a bit towards the end of the first half, getting to the byline, getting around, giving Alonso some trouble, putting in a couple of crosses, one of which nearly led to an Obama, Obama-Yang uh, chance. Um, so um, the width may, and we've seen with the centre-backs, uh, the way they line up, we push those full-backs forward. That may just be where the width comes from. And Mkhitaryan and Ozil may be the two behind the striker. That's kind of my go-to, and I still expect to see plenty of Lacazette. Uh, but but that being the default setting, or or for the bigger games, the default setting. Well, I think what's interesting is the one thing we've seen quite a bit of is this lopsided or tilted front three, where two of the three play almost as twin strikers, almost as two up front, mm. and the third is pushed wide, uh, usually yeah. wide right. And so... I don't think you want Ozil pushed wide right, and I don't know that he's going to get the chance to start at the the 10 per se, you know, as, as a central midfielder, because that's probably going to be Ramsey. So if he wants to go with Aubameyang and Ozil kind of almost as a two up front, then Mkhitaryan fits more as that wider forward option than a Lacazette would. Um, now, are we sure we don't want Ozil wide right? I mean, think where the goal came from. And not for the first time. Well, I think in this game, we saw that he was much more effective and, and influential when he did move central. I mean, from the sort of tail end of the first half and then certainly in the second half, he came to life and really was his usual brilliant self. Um, okay. But now you're right. I mean, I think, look, he's always going to be better than whoever else is in whatever position he's in. You know what I mean? So if he's out wide yeah. right, he's going to be better than Mkhitaryan out there because he's a better player. Um, but is that the best I, I use mean, of him? He was wide right early in the game. Uh, and if you look at when we started coming into the game, he was still nominally starting wide right, but he you'd see him dropping left into midfield, picking up the ball and starting to counter. So he was basically free. Yeah, well, and, and I think that's overall, we know that he's always go, he's never going to be too rooted to any position. So, Tim, yeah. l- let's get into the hobby horse section before we close out here. Last Last topic. And it's the Aubameyang-Lacazette conundrum. Um, I was really surprised after this game at the amount of people that I saw on Twitter and things that I read and people responding to me specifically, um, just angrily making the point that Aubameyang's not good enough to be a lone striker, that he loses the ball too easily, that he can't hold it up, that Lacazette is better, that he's better as a striker, that you know Aubameyang is really just about running in behind. And I look at a guy that just 
his whole career has scored goals. He's just a better mm. proven goal scorer than Lacazette. Lacazette got 14 in 32 games last year. Aubameyang got 10 in 13 games um, and four assists. And Lacazette got four assists in 32 games. He is a higher XG player. He's a higher non-penalty goal 90 player. He's a higher shot per 90 mm. player. I mean, and, and again, none of this is to knock Lacazette, by the way, who I think is a very talented player. But he's a guy that by the middle of the season last season, people were ready to be, be done with, you know, and we're devastated that Giroud left and we're desperate for Aubameyang. And now I'm reading this. It It's all a little bit confusing. And, and I think certainly points to the fact that as fans, maybe we're just never happy, which mm-hmm. is entirely possible. But, you know, I do think this is going to be the argument. This is going to be the new battle, the new, yeah. the new Twitter thing, which is who should be our striker and should we play two up front? And it should be Lacazette. No, it should be Aubameyang. And I, I have to admit, I'm more inclined to plant my flag with it being Aubameyang, but I'm very open to more fluidity about this. But I really do want to get your thoughts on how you think we should best use these twin options we have, and if we should even be using them together, or or if they should be kept as rotational options. So, if if it was me, I still think that our squad is best built for a back three. Um, I think mm. the fact that we lack a really good dominant central defender. I think all of those defenders would benefit from having two alongside them. We lack width, so having wing backs makes sense. Um, Kalasanac to me is a wing back. He's not. He doesn't look like a full back to me, but he looks like a decent wing back. Um, and then that way you can you can get two up front because you can go a little bit three five two, and you can have Mesut as a number ten. Um, you know, setting up a little bit like Chelsea did when they kind of went three five one one and had Hazard. Uh, kind of playing just off of um, off of Costa, but I mean, I, I think basically you can invert that forward triangle that we had not at the end of last season, the end of the season before, where Sanchez and Özil were playing behind the striker. I think you can have Özil playing behind two, and actually, I think that would work really well because I think I think Lacazette and Aubameyang as a strike partnership um, is that could actually be very complementary because Lacazette likes to drop off. He's got good link up play. He's a bit of a nine and a half, you know. He mm-hmm. likes to drop yep. off into space. And when he plays up front on his own, sometimes I think that's to our detriment because then we don't have anyone actually up front. It's almost like having a false nine. Whereas a Bamiang, he's, he's not interested in that. He wants to go forward and he wants to be in the box. So I think that they're potentially a really, really complementary front uh, front two. I think our centre backs need to be in a back three, and I think Bellerin and Kalasnach. I, I think Bellerin is fine as a full back or a wing back. I think Kalasnach is a wing back. So I think that that's well. I say I think that's what we should do. That's what I would do. And the other appeal of that, Tim. The other appeal of that, Tim, is we don't actually have a lot of goal scorers in our front four or front six. Yeah. I mean, it's basically you would say the striker and Ramsey. And yeah. I mean, Mkhitaryan has uh, has a decent number of goals in his history, yeah, yeah. But, but not for Arsenal, and not particularly for United. So it's like if if uh, Aubameyang ain't scoring, who's the other guy who's going to step up? It, we don't have Sanchez. Uh, we maybe have Ramsey. So you you can see the uh, a I can see the appeal of of the system you just laid out, but b you can see the appeal of Aubameyang and Lacazette. Yeah. when you need extra goals and it ain't happening with Aubameyang. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, and yeah, yeah I, I think we have lacked goals and we've lacked goal scorers for, for quite a long time. If you look at 
the number of um, goals the league champions are scoring compared to us season on season. It's it's there's quite a gap there. So I definitely yeah. see how many the, goals do City? You know how many goal yeah. scorers do City or Liverpool have? Exactly. I mean, my God. Exactly. They can they can kill you any way they like, um, basically. And whereas Arsenal have been a little bit more intricate and one dimensional. So. I think what he will do, and I'll probably live with because I've got no choice, and because it will, you know, it'll probably work to a degree, is um, is yeah, for you know, home games against the lesser lights. So Bamiang will play as a left-sided centre forward, um, kind of next to Lacazette, and um, you know, I, I think they'll both score plenty of goals like that. It's, it's almost like an equation, isn't it? It's a bit like, um, do we get a hundred percent out of a Bamiang and play him up front? Or do we get perhaps seventy percent of him, but then get a hundred percent of Lacazette? Like that's a really it's, tough it's question. A bit, I don't think it, I don't think it it's is. a, a yeah, common yeah. sense answer either. You know? Yeah, because playing put it this way: you put Abamyang wide left, you are not going to get the best out of him. You're just not. But does having him and Lacazette does having like a slightly you know not absolutely one hundred percent Abamyang? And getting Lacazette in there, getting another prolific goal scorer who can do something different. Um, it, is is that equation more favourable than just getting the best out of Aubameyang and perhaps only having then Ramsey as the other semi-reliable goal scorer in the team? So I, I, I think there are questions there. Personally, I like I say, I think back three suits our defence. I think our midfield are fine in it, and I think it gets us to up front. But it doesn't look like that's what Emery is going to do. Yeah, I'm really curious. I, look, I, I think people forget Aubameyang the year before last scored 31 goals at Dortmund in the league alone. You know, he scored 10 mm. in 13 for us, playing with a lot of backup players while we were just kind of lining up for Europa League at that point. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know that <laughs> it makes a lot of sense to buy a guy for that much money in his absolute prime, who is arguably one of the best number nines in Europe and then not play him as a number nine. And if you say, well, we can get 70% of him in another position to get a little more out of Lacazette, I'm not totally convinced that that's the right way to go. The thing, But with the, the problem, Elliot, would be using your math. Say Aubameyang gets 30 goals. We just need another 70 goals or 60 goals or 50 goals to compete with City then. So who's scoring, say, 55 no, goals get, well, then maybe beyond, you get, beyond Maybe Obamian. you get 15 from Lacazette, and you get 10 from Mkhitaryan, you get 10 from Ozil, and you get 12 from Ramsey, and you know, throw in the odd own goal and, and defender, yeah. and you're there. I, look, again, I'm not, and it's not that I don't want Lacazette playing or I don't rate him. It, it isn't that at all. It's that, you know, the one thing you need, I think, to, to win leagues and, and be a top team is a player who has that superior goal scoring quality who can who can score in situations others don't and i believe obamiang is that superior goal scoring quality player and i think if you move him out wide i don't know that he can be that i think he can still be good i just don't know if he becomes superior and i i'll just finish on that thought by saying you know, obviously there are different ways of playing against different opposition. The thing about Aubameyang that I'm willing to concede is he is a relatively low involvement type player, and those kinds of strikers can be polarizing because in a game where he doesn't score, he may have 10 touches, and then everybody goes after the game and says uh, he's pony. You know, he's a flat track bully. He can't because he didn't do because, much because he didn't do anything. The problem is 
if you're going to get 30 goals in a season, getting 10 touches a game, the the fans are just going to have to ride the lightning with that. You know what I mean? Um, and that that can be tricky at times because being involved catches the eye, but it's it's goals that matter at the end of the day. So I think I think that'll be interesting. I mean, Tim, as a final thought on that, I mean, are you? Are you as high on Obama Yang in general as I am that you think he is mm. worth setting up your team around, or do you think that's overstating it? Yeah, yeah, I, I think I am. I think th- this is the striker we've spent years and years looking for. Um, and, you know, when I kind of see a, a lot of kind of people, it, it, I, I don't know if I should, I should bring up the Giroud thing, really, because oh, he's gone Oh, please do. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I think we, we outgrew Giroud. And, you know, he was he was a very good, like, 20-goal-a-season 20 man. But what we've got is a guy who can get towards 40 um, in Aubameyang. Um, now, you know, like the, the, the conversation we just had, whether that means we play him wide left and we get maybe 25 out of him and 15 out of Lacazette or 20 and 20 rather than, you know, do we go for like, the, do we go for the Suarez season or do we go for the Suarez and Sturridge season, I guess, is 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 what we're looking at here. Um, but yeah, I'm absolutely psyched. And I think, um, you know, he, he obviously came in at a point of the season where he was playing pretty meaningless games. People were bored of Arsenal and bored of life. So and all of the focus on Arsenal was around Arsene Wenger. And because the goals he was scoring weren't particularly meaningful in the Premier League, I, I think that having had that kind of... Not that he needed any acclimatisation. He scored on his debut and um, you know didn't really stop scoring after that. But he's had that few months now. He's, he's kind of settled in a bit. Um, I think he's dynamite. I really do. Um, I, I think he's 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 got an argument that that's that's the best striker in the Premier League, kind of up there with Harry Kane. Totally agree. Um, and that that can that can be devastating. We've seen in seasons past what you know having an all right, fairly functional team and a brilliant brilliant striker can get you. Um, you know, Liverpool nearly won the league with a, fa- a fairly average team behind Luis Suarez. And not saying he's going to win us the league, but, you know, I, I kind of look at Arsenal at the moment. And what I think we're looking at is some marginal gains um, to try and not slowly rebuild, but, to, you know, rebuild as quickly as possible. But I think we're kind of sorted going forward. It's just how we fit them all in. And really, the marginal gains you're looking at don't be. Just be average in defence. Don't be terrible. Be average, and that probably gets us another five points. Be average away from home and not terrible, and that probably gets us another five or six points, and that gets us right back in in the kind of top four equation. Because I'm with with Abamyang in there. I'm just not really worried about scoring goals anymore, which I have been for quite a long time. Yeah, that that see that and that is quintessentially my point, right? Which is you can tell me you're going to line up the front three any way you want. If you tell me we're going to start with Aubameyang at center forward every game for the entire league, and I realize that's probably not likely, but if you were able to do that, I'd feel pretty good about our goals because you've got a 30-35 goal a season type striker up front, and usually once you have that, the rest of it kind of sorts itself out. Um, but I, I fully acknowledge that we have an excellent player in Lacazette as well, that there may be a way to play them both that gets the best out of them. This isn't, you know, this doesn't have to be rigid intellectually. Uh, Paul, let you finish on just one quick thing before we say goodbye, which is just, 
you know, in the midst of United looking like a miserable dumpster fire, uh, <laughs> just a horrible that place. We're, that we're warming our hands next to and toasting mich- marshmallows on. Yes. Yeah, un- until De Gea turns into a squid and we lose 1-0 in a game that we win 8-0 to zero on XG. Um, but how much stock do you put in how happy this group of players seems? I mean, for right. for everything else that's going on, they seem really happy, really together. And I know, look, a lot of that can be for the cameras and a lot of it can be put on and, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. We've seen happy Arsenal squads perform terribly. But, I mean, do you do you get a good sense of the group and the way they're knitted together and the, the sort of sense of harmony that there is in the squad? Yeah, I mean, and you can think of two major factors there. Of course, Emery coming in, that's, that's the biggest thing, kind of a... Uh, a collective sl- sigh of relief that kind of the 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 doom clouds of the last couple of years uh, are past and kind of they'll have the same kind of um, naive preseason enthusiasm about a kind of a new approach. Um, so the, there's going to be a lot of a, optimism, a different way of doing things. So that that's going to lift the mood. I think, you know, maybe a, a far second, but again, Obama Yang. I mean, he's just maybe he's just a symbol of kind of a, a new spirit within the team. But he really does seem to know how to loosen guys up around him from uh, making Lacazette think that there's that uh, they're on the same team. They're working together, that they're best buddies. Um, poor sucker. Yeah, it's funny because right? Lacazette, for whatever, he, he, he doesn't exude enthusiasm and, and, bit moody. and joy all the time. But Obama certainly seems to pull it out of him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even yesterday, he's like uh, asked about his goal. He's like, well, I missed the chance before it. But he I did. guess he's right. Made it okay. <laughs> all right. Actually, he missed two really good chances. And one of them, you know, he, he uh, turned his man beautifully and just skimmed it past the post. That so. was nice. Yeah. He had a sm- a short cameo, but had two great chances. And he says, you know, he didn't know too much about the ball that hit off his leg. But still, there's hitting off your leg and there's hitting off your leg. So I thought he had a very nice little confidence-boosting cameo. Yeah, and so, look, I mean, yeah. if if this preseason has taught me anything, it's that we're going to win the Europa League on penalties. So that's good. Yeah, um, that seems to be where it's going. So, yeah, you know, credit to Aubameyang. He's, he seems to be the guy who's not a fool but he is a jester and kind of lifts the mood of everybody. And uh, hey, we'll, we'll we'll see how we get into the season. But uh, when your 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 goal scoring talisman is the guy who tells everybody to loosen up, and yeah, you saw it in the penalties. I mean, everybody was kind of loose, having fun, uh, and buried their penalties. So that was good. Yeah. Well, long may it continue, uh, because if they continue to be happy, maybe it means we're continuing to win, which would be a good thing. Um, We'll come back with another podcast after Lazio at the weekend and then the big bumper season preview. And again, a lot of you submitted questions for this podcast that I just think make a lot of sense for the season preview podcast and and topics we'll want to cover there. So we'll hold those back for that. Um, Whoa, 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 Elliot, Elliot, you're missing the new section on the website. Is there a new section? There is, yeah. The new recipe section. Oh, what's the recipe section? What is that? Um, so we get a, a guest chef to dial in a recipe for our website. This week, it's special guest Hudson Adoy with his recipe, Hector's liver with fava beans and a little Chianti on toast. 
He workshopped that website. before the pod, everybody, and uh, <laughs> it got the same reaction there. Uh, I offered but, it to you to you for your intro, and you turned it, turned it down. Instead, so. I went with a diarrhea joke that didn't even really land either. So you know what? We can both take the L on this one. Look, I um I will tell you that we are going to give away an Arsenal shirt. It'll be home, away, or third kit. Your choice, player of your choice. Uh, the entry will be on the website, and that will go live uh, after the season preview episode and then we'll announce the winner on the Chelsea post Chelsea pod. So, I mean, you, you know, Puma really fucked up though, because I said, we're going to give away a shirt and literally the majority of the responses I got you guys was who would want it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, bravo Puma. We can't even give this shit away. Um, so much for that promotion. Uh, in any event, we're going to talk to Dan Betts after this, uh, five minutes with him to talk about his book that chronicles the 1991, uh, nearly invincible season under George Graham, uh, really sort of an interesting period in Arsenal history, kind of forgotten between the 89 season and, uh, the actual invincible season. So stick around for that. That's just going to be a quick five minutes, uh, telling, yeah, everything you need to know about his book and where to find it. But before we do that, let's do the professional thing and wrap up this part of the podcast. So Tim's on Twitter at Stilberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Yeah, great to have you back. Always good to chat. And uh, Paul's on Twitter at Pause in My Pants. Thanks, Paz. Woohoo! Yep, you were on too. Uh, my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review. Write nasty things about us in the comments. And go to the website and tell us what you think. Arsenal Vision po- uh, <laughs> I should know what it is if I'm going to send you there. ArsenalVisionPodcast.com. You should definitely check it out, Tim. Uh, in any event, <laughs> uh, we will be back with another podcast after Lazio. And coming up next, it's Dan Betts and uh, five good minutes on his new book. I gotta get paid. Hey, well, that's the way it is. Come on. Come on. That's just the way it is. All right, joining me now is Dan Betts. You can find him on Twitter at Jockman uh, AFC. That's J-O-K, man, AFC. And uh, he has a book out. It is one that I'm sure you're going to want to read all about because it turns out Arsenal uh, were, I don't know if you know this, invincible at one point, went through an entire Premier League season (laughs) undefeated. I, I believe there are books you can find about that, but he didn't write about that. He wrote about the time Arsenal was almost invincible, and it is coincidentally called Almost Invincible, the class of 1990 Dan, great to have you on. Thank you very, very much for inviting me. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure, and I'm, I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk about your book and let everybody know about it. So uh, in 1990, 1991, Arsenal almost went invincible. Uh, what made you decide to write a book about this team, and sort of what angle did you take when you approached the project? Very, very good question. Um, I've always wanted to write a book. I've always wanted to be an author. Uh, so I started blogging uh, about four or five years ago. And um, the only thing I feel like I know anything about is about Arsenal. So it was all the book. My first book was always going to be about Arsenal. But um, as you well know, there's plenty of material out there to read about our club. Indeed. So it needed to be something that hasn't been covered before. And I knew about our title winning side, but. The more I looked, uh, the more I realised that it was overshadowed by, uh, and, and rightfully so in a way, uh, the Invincibles, the uh, the miracle of Anfield 89, uh, even the uh, double of 98, the double of 2002, uh, the, 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 t- the title winning season of, of 1990, 1991 just seems to fade into obscurity. But the, prob- the more I researched it, the more I realised that not only is it just as good, it may even stand shoulder to shoulder with our best season. And that was obviously the Invincibles, because while they lost that one game, they had to overcome some incredible obstacles to to not only win the title, but they they cantered to it and they smashed every single opponent uh, that stood in their way. Uh, they had their captain um, sent to prison, Tony Adams, uh, for and they, he missed eight games of the season. And we all know what an inspirational figure he was. So to miss him 
and no, he's incarcerated. Uh, I mean, and then just keep going on and on. And not only that, they had a, a the fixture fixture schedule from hell. For about a third of the season, they played every three three days, um, and with a smaller squad. They had nineteen players in the in the team, and one of them was. Uh, well, Colin Pates, who I think he made one substitute appearance. Uh, mm. You had Andy Cole, um, who had one substitute appearance. So pretty much 17 players comprised the squad. Um, not only that, we were deducted points for our part in the Old Trafford brawl. Uh, the book goes into length on that. Um, the book also, um, I managed to snag a few interviews with some of the uh, ex legend well, the legends of the side, which so you had Nigel Winterburn contributed to it, uh, Smudge, Alan Smith, uh, Lee Dixon, David Seaman, uh, the gentleman is Bob Wilson, and uh, we had um, uh, Amy Lawrence, the Guardian and Observer journalist. She contributed to the book as well, uh, thankfully, because she really knows our stuff. It's a murderer's um, row of contributors, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's well contributed, and on, and uh, David Hillier mm-hmm. through the youth team and uh, played a pretty big part in that side. So uh, the more I researched, the more I realised that they overcame some amazing things. And George Graham's name is kind of sullied now. Um, he, obviously, he took the bung and he left in acrimonious circumstances. But he um, his name is uh, synonymous with the back five, and rightfully so because the back five was probably, in my opinion and many people's opinion, uh, the greatest defence that's ever played on English shores in the modern generation. Um, and they did it for so long. And George Graham constructed that but the t- the football we played uh during that title winning season was incredible uh part of that was down to uh, signing the super suite anders limpar uh but we adapted our technique and our play to suit like uh, when we wanted to put it on the air and get a flick on from alan smith that worked but we had um a dazzling wing play from uh, magic man Paul Merson, Anders Limpar, Paul Davis and Mickey Thomas were chipping in, uh, Kevin Campbell off the bench and Perry Groves. We, we we had it made that season and I want everyone to know that this side, uh, how good it was. And then I'll let you make your own mind up whether you think it was on a par with Invincibles. There's a lot more in the book and uh, fingers crossed you come away from it re- uh, reading it and think, wow, the, we've got a lot to shout about. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting how history could have been different if they hadn't lost that one game. And certainly, I mean, it it is a a team that I think you rightfully say is lost to history to some extent because of the theatrics of uh, 89 when, you know, 150,000 Arsenal fans traveled to Anfield to to witness that happen live, (laughs) including many people who hadn't been born yet. And then, you know, obviously uh, the, the actual Invincible season. So... You know, it's it's nice yeah. to be able to revisit these moments in the club's history. And I think for a lot of people, um, you know, who maybe only came in contact with the club after this period, I, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of things in there, that, as you referenced, that are connected to what would be considered the contemporary history of the club. Certainly Dixon, uh, Adams, Seaman. I mean, these are players that you'd be familiar with from the Arsene Wenger era as well. So uh, definitely interesting. I mean, just as a, as a last question about the book, do you – Sort of follow the season chronologically. Is it uh, anecdotal? Do you do you, yeah, you sort of weave in the stories of, from the players? It's um, it's a bit of everything, but ma- uh, mainly the chapters go through as the season progresses. Uh, there's a, there's some bigger chapters than others. They, it focuses a uh, a lot on obviously the one sole loss, the um, also the semi final cup defeat to Spurs, kind of smarted. But um, the players talked at length about the disappointment of that so i had to feature that um but there's a lot of anecdotes because 
there's a lot of stats out there that you can read and you can pick up. And if I was just to make a stat book, then well, <laughs> you can buy that anywhere. You can you can do that yourself. You can read about that yourself. I also spoke to a lot of fans who were there, and their emotion shone through um, about talking about that season, that team uh, attending those matches and the memories they have. And I've tried to make it as entertaining as possible. I want it to be a story, but one that you can take away and, and, and if it leaves you with any if you feel like you have a memory of that season even though you weren't there then it, that's uh, mission accomplished awesome well i i will say that it sounds fascinating unfortunately i haven't had a chance to get my hands on it yet but uh i'm certainly gonna add it to the queue because there's some great arsenal books that have just came out uh our own yeah. uh, tim stillman has one that's out uh that he talked he's, about um, actually at, we've got a, a dual launch uh, both books are launching at the same time uh on the 12th of august oh that's fantastic well there you go so yeah, yeah. a natural natural moment to pick up both of them i would say um cross off yeah. sort of your late summer early fall reading then uh get ready for this season with a look back at the relatively recent history of the 90s and then the history of the 80s but the 1880s you know slightly different um <laughs> yeah. so all right the, the important part here let's get to the part that matters where do they pick it up um, at the moment, it's um, www.legendspublishing.net. Um, there's a link on my bio, uh, which is uh, at Jockman AFC, J O K M A N A F C. Um, if you go on www.uptheArsenal.com, that's my own website, and it's got a multitude of links to my book because I'm plugging it mercilessly. Um, you can't miss it. So um, if you just type in Almost Invincible, um, arsenal side in google it will invariably come up as well but try go through my bio on twitter or up the arsenal.com and uh you'll find it yeah awesome well I, I really appreciate you coming on telling us about it sounds like you got a great book and uh, i think everybody should give it a look and it, it it covers a period of arsenal's history that i think deserves a little more attention than it gets so that would be a, a great way to do that yeah all right well again uh it's been a pleasure to talk to you you can find in on Twitter at JockmanAFC. That's J-O-K-M-A-N-A-F-C. And uh, we look forward to the launch of your book. And congrats. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Okay, that'll do it. So we'll talk to you after the next pod, after Lazio at the weekend. Cheers. Cheers.